With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 156. It's titled, Your Job or Half Your Business Could Be Gone Tomorrow. I recently visited with a friend who is a real estate agent. I asked him how business was going. He said it was picking up now that the spring selling season had started. Then I asked him how many transactions in his, in his area were for sale by owners, where the home seller didn't utilize a real estate agent to list the house for sale. I was absolutely shocked by the answer. He said last year in his area, 30% of transactions involved a for sale by owner listing, and he expected it would be 40% this year. The National Association of Realtors reports that in 2015, 88% of U.S. buyers purchased their homes through a real estate agent or broker. They indicate that percentage has steadily increased from 69% in 2001. That number also surprised me. But what the organization didn't say is what percentage of those homes bought through a real estate agent were purchased from sellers who had listed the house as for sale by owner. I expect a larger and larger percentage of transactions across the country involve a for sale by owner listing. In the U.S., home buyers don't pay real estate agents for their services. The commission payout comes from the home seller. A for-sale-by-owner seller often agrees to pay 3% of the sales price to the buyer's agent as a commission, but not always. My friend said many sellers refuse to pay a commission, or they'll pay a flat fee that is much less than 3%. Now, my mother used to sell real estate in the late 1970s, and I remember going to her office and looking at these thick, multiple listing books with page after page of homes for sale in the Cincinnati area. Each home had one black and white photo with a brief description. Until web browsers became common in the late 1990s, the easiest way to discover a house that was for sale was through a real estate agent that had access to this multiple listing service. Not anymore. In 2015, 51% of home buyers found the home they purchased through the internet. 34% from real estate agents, 8% from a yard sign, and this is according to the National Association of Realtors. My real estate friend asked me what I would do if I was in his situation, where 40% of home sellers and many buyers didn't see any need for a real estate agent. This friend is a smart marketer. He was one of the first in the area to sell himself as a brand with pictures, with his pictures on the on his yard sign and billboards across the city and trailers, moving trailers to help people move that when they weren't used, he would strategically park around the town. Yet he and other real estate agents face the same threat that undermined travel agents. Their primary perceived value was their access to inventory. It was a walled garden. 
you had to go to a real estate agent to figure out what was for sale. Otherwise, you just sort of drove around neighborhoods and looked for signs. That was sort of the alternative. But other than that, looking around, maybe an ad in the paper, but you definitely usually had to go to a real estate agent. Now that inventory of homes, airfares, and hotels are readily available online, real estate and travel agents struggle to demonstrate their value added. The last two houses we sold and the most recent one we bought didn't involve a real estate agent on either side of the transaction. One buyer found our house on the internet site Zillow. That was our farm. And the house before that, we posted it on Facebook and found a buyer within a few days. We also found the house we recently bought on Zillow. When I was a senior in high school, I worked the evenings as a janitor cleaning a medical office building. As I worked, I carried a small transistor radio with me and listened to the Bruce Williams show. This was a guy that was a Q&A show, and I only remember two things. One, he, I remember him saying how wonderful St. Bart's was in, in St. John's. I've not been to St. Bart's. I have been to St. John's, and, and that just this, this island retreat sounded wonderful. But the other thing, this piece of advice, I remember him saying over and over and over again, particularly when somebody's real estate deal would go bad, is why would you enter into the largest financial transaction of your life without someone in your corner advising you? He was specifically referring to having an attorney represent you when buying a home. The use of a real estate agent was a given. Now home sellers and buyers download a purchase contract on the internet and enter into financial transactions worth hundreds of thousands of dollars without expert help. I know, I did it myself. Yet on this most recent purchase, I found a contract, an Idaho contract on the internet. I started downloading it and I couldn't remember who, bought, who pays for what in terms of the title insurance and all those things. And you know what I did? I called up a real estate friend, a different one, one who I've done a lot of business with, both in terms of investing in his projects and he's helped us out. So I felt comfortable asking him for this advice, but I needed some help. Of course, people do the same thing when it comes to investing, traveling, and many other pursuits. They like to do it on their own, and and often they don't turn to experts. But my friend told me some horror stories of deals gone bad when a real estate agent wasn't involved, such as potential buyers who weren't able to get their escrow funds back when the seller backed out of the deal, or when the home closed and items that were supposed to be included in the sale were no longer in the home. Of course, there's often the, 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 the other side of the problem. And when you have a real estate agent, I remember reading an article in the New York Times a while ago where the biggest issue in terms of a sale of apartments in New York City was things that were in the contract that they insisted that the seller take with them, typically very, very large items. And there have been instances where the house closed the, the buyer arrives to move in, and there's that huge, ugly piece of furniture that was that that, that didn't get moved. And so you got you got to be careful when you close on the house. We've had we've had situations where a triplex that we bought, we were expecting a, a, a very very old chandelier. We wanted to be there, and and when the house when we showed up for the house, the the sellers had taken it with them, even though we had specified we never did get it back. So you got to be wary of that. I recently 
received an email from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus telling me he wasn't going to renew. He'd been a member for two years and he wrote me, your work has been very helpful to me and I appreciate the value I received from the membership. However, you have helped me to realize that I do not have the time or energy to stay on top of this very important aspect of retirement planning. And I have such decided to leverage a financial advisor. In other words, he realized he prefers the one-on-one guidance of an expert. And how did he come to know that? Because he tried it on his own and he got some advice, tried doing it on his own, and he realized this is just too complicated. Not everyone wants to buy or sell on their own in terms of their house, nor many people don't want to book a cruise. If I, I know, I've never been on a cruise, but if I ever did, I would probably go to a travel agent because I know very, very little about booking a cruise. Oftentimes, you want to use a travel agent for a complex vacation. Many people who think they want to do it on their own, travel, a house, investing, don't realize what they don't know. Real estate agents no longer have a monopoly on home listings, but they do have expertise and they continue to be trusted advisors to those that want guidance in buying or selling a house. To to answer my friend's question, what would I do if I were a real estate agent? I would focus more and more time on earning trust by providing education to those who want to buy or sell a house on their own. I'd use a website, a YouTube channel, or a podcast to teach how to market and stage a house, the intricacies of the purchase contracts, how escrow works, what pitfalls to look out for, what could go wrong when buying or selling a house on your own. The real estate agent that does this becomes a trusted authority. Many, of course, will use that information and they'll go and buy a, a, a house or they'll sell a house on their own. But there will also be those who realize how difficult it is and will want the help of a real estate agent. And who will they turn to when they want that help? The agent who they trust, who took the time to teach them the complexities of buying and selling a house. How do I know this works? Because I do it in the financial space. For three and a half years now, I've been doing a podcast. Has it been three? No, I guess it's only been three years. Coming up on three years, I've been doing a podcast, sharing free information. And I often get emails from people that want to hire me as a financial advisor. And I'm not a financial advisor, and I'm teaching people how to do it on their own, yet they still want help. Real estate agents can do the exact same thing. It seems counterintuitive, but that is a way to stand out and be an authority in your space. Because now we have access. You cannot structure a business based on not disclosing information, not having a walled garden, even car dealerships. I recently saw an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's called Auto Dealers Decide Cars Are Taking Up Too Much Prime Space. And it was talking about how, how large change are selling, selling out some of the real estate 
or putting the cars on less valuable real estate because they don't need as many cars on the property. The article says nearly 90% of car shoppers use the internet to shop for a vehicle, according to a 2016 study by third-party shopping site autotrader.com, conducted by the research firm IHS Automotive. Of the customers who use their smartphones at a dealership, the study found 59% are comparing prices for vehicles at other dealerships, while 38% are comparing inventory at other dealerships. I, I've done that. Have you done that? I remember the first time I did that. It was way, I think, 2006, where internet was really slow. But I remember having my smartphone, what I had at the time, and we were negotiating a Honda Odyssey van. And I was comp- looking for other prices to confirm. I think I was looking for Blue Book value to make sure I was getting a de- good deal. Now, with data speed so much faster, we can quickly get information. I recently helped my sister buy a car. What did we do? We pulled up all the inventory at all the dealerships in the Columbus, Ohio area. We found one, and then I said, go go to that dealer and, and ask this drive that specific car. And we negotiated a deal. And so the, the, the point is, is we, ha- as professionals or any job, we have to add value in other ways. We have to add value by becoming trusted authorities, not by withholding information. We, as experts, we have to be willing to freely share our information and serve. And then we will attract people that want a little extra help. Seth Godin recently wrote a fascinating blog post. He said about half of all the bananas consumed worldwide come from the same tree. Not the same type of tree, the very same tree, the Cavendish, which has no seeds, is propagated by grafting or cloning, which means that they're all identical. If you're a mass marketer pushing everyone to expect and like the very same thing, a thing with no variation and little surprise, This is good news indeed, until, of course, a fungus comes along and wipes out the entire monoculture. It's tempting to want all of your bananas to be the same, to have all your employees be clones of one another, your products to be indistinguishable from commodities, even conforming to the dominant narrative of the day. And if you're a freelancer, you're under a huge pressure to be just like everyone else. It's easier to talk about what you do, easier to fit in, easier to be ignored. But variation brings resilience and innovation and the chance to make a difference. As real estate agents or other professionals, we can be different. And if it turns out a large percentage of real estate start teaching home buyers and sellers how to sell on your own, it's going to be how you teach, how you differentiate. How, how I podcast is very different from how somebody else podcasts. I don't see other podcasters as a competition because they, listeners, identify with the teaching style and, and the, the personality of given people. You will attract your tribe as long as you're willing to share. Let me pause for a few minutes and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. 
Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. So we've talked about what experts can do to stand out and differentiate themselves in an era where information on products and services is so readily available and many people think they're experts, so they've tried doing it on their own. But what if you're not an expert? What if you're a recent college graduate? I recently got an email from Austin. He graduated in finance, and I often get emails from new graduates saying, well, what do I do? I'm trying to start a new career. I'm just not even sure how to go about it. My oldest son is in this same situation. I attended his graduation this past week at BYU, and he, he's an Asian studies major, and he's, he's trying to figure out his career. And then the, the valedictorian of, of his particular class this is the Kennedy School of International Relations. So the most common question these graduates get from this school is, what are you studying? They'll say Asian studies, Latin America, European studies. And then their next question is, what are you going to do with that? One of the speakers was a graduate from 2011. Her name is Cece Messick. She was born in Hong Kong, but grew up in the U.S., she graduated from BYU in 2011 and faced the same question, what am I going to do now? See, she said you have to make your own opportunities, and, and all graduates have to do that. She asked a board member of a firm that had come to speak on campus. It was a, it was a board member for, from a firm called Micro Benefits. They were a startup based in China, and fairly new company, and she asked this board member, is there an area within your company or outside forces that you just don't, you want to know more about and, and how I could help out? And, and he mentioned some particular area, and so she got together with some of her classmates in, for, for this particular class, and they put together a presentation, and then they learned, and they studied, and they they. they researched the problem, and then they presented it to this board member. He was so appreciative, he hired her right on the spot. So right after a fresh new graduate in 2011, she went to China to live to work on this startup. 
and and the the startup went through some struggles. They made it. They made it through, and now she's finishing up her MBA at Wharton. She has an internship at Apple in their retail technology division, and looks like, if I understood correctly, she's got a full time job with them. See how easy it is. But it's not. And this is why I loved her talk. That's the outside story. Everything went so smoothly. She told us the inside story, how she got to China and was just so overwhelmed. She, she's not, a, although she's from Hong Kong, my impression was she's not a native Chinese speaker. So she studied, she's a Chinese studies graduate and is learning Chinese, but was very, very uncomfortable with her Chinese as she tried to navigate the culture. And the startup was failing. About a month after she got there, they fired the CEO and other members of the executive team. She thought she would be out of a job. And one of her jobs was to fire other employees. She said she spent many hours during the work week, maybe not hours, but certainly minutes, crying, absolutely overwhelmed, feeling homesick, like what in the world am I doing? Felt like she was so overhead. She wasn't a business graduate, and yet here she is trying to help run a business. This particular company was focused on improving the livelihood of China's migrant and factory workers. And the initial product they had was a complete failure. So she went with her team, and they just camped out of the dormitories of these workers that work in factories, trying to figure out what they want. Is there anything that they need? How could they be of service? And they noticed that the vast majority of these workers had mobile phones. Some of them nicer mobile phones than, than from many of the Americans where, where she was from. And so they started asking them and, and observing, and they found out that these workers had a very, very strong desire to learn. Things totally unassociated with their, with their factory job. One, one worker wanted to learn how to use Microsoft Office so he could get a better job. Another worker wanted to know how he could learn better presentation skills so he could move up into management. A mother who had left her 14-year-old son at home so she could make a better life in the city for him wanted to know how could she make her son love her because he was so upset that, that she had left. But through that process, they realized that, well, maybe there's some mobile education app that they could put together. And and that's what they're focused on. But what impressed me by her thing is she did struggle. She didn't know what was going to happen. She was willing to take some risk. And now she's navigating her her career. She still doesn't know where it's going because the world is changing so fast. It's likely that many of us or many of you will lose your job. You could lose half your revenue as technology takes it over, and we have to be adaptable. She wrote in her journal, If my faith cannot part the Red Seas, then at least I can learn to calm the waves in my heart and keep going the next day. If I cannot move the mountains that stand in my way, then I will find the strength to climb them instead. She later said, small and modest goals do not have the magic to stir your souls. We have to have big, gargantuous goals. We have to have stretch goals. We have to have a bias toward action. This was an article, there's a book recently came out, I guess a couple years ago, The Achievement 
habit. Stop wishing, start doing, and take command of your life. It was by Bernie Roth. He's the founder and academic director of the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. I think it's called the D School for short. He says, when you try to do something, try, it may happen. But once you encounter an obstacle or two, you're going to stop. Doing is when it doesn't matter if there are obstacles. You're going to do it anyway. If you look back at your life, the only way you got where you are is because you did something. Doing is everything. Having a bias toward action. And that's what Cece did. And she had a bias toward action. And she was overwhelmed. There's been times when I started, Austin asked about my my investment career. I remember we had a client. Brand new client, medical malpractice insurer. I'm about 30. I know nothing about insurance investment. I know nothing about insurance, the insurance financial statements. Yet there I am with our founder down there. And and the way this was set up is the founder is turning this account over to me. So I am the medical malpractice insurance expert. And I'm meeting at the table with, with all these doctors trying to teach them about investing insurance assets as their consultant. I was scrambling, but I went and I found experts. I found other managers, and I, and I dug in, and I learned, and, and I became an insurance expert. Most of us feel like imposters. I certainly felt like an imposter, often as an investment advisor, but slowly, slowly, I learned to where I actually became a medical malpractice insurance expert because I talked to other experts and learned what they were doing. I was curious and I was willing to learn and I had a bias toward action. In that case, I didn't have a choice. I was the expert, so I better make sure like I sound like one, even though I, I was fearful in the meeting. The only thing I loved about this client is they were located in Miami and I could take my kids down and they would meet at five o'clock on Friday afternoon and then I would take one of my sons my daughter, we would spend the weekend in Florida. But I had a bias toward action. I was willing to do, not just try and overcome the obstacles. Some final thoughts. If you've been to business school, you've run into Michael E. Porter. He's an expert on strategy. There's an article in the 1985 Harvard Business Review called How Information Gives You Competitive Advantage. I'll link to it in the show notes, or if you remember my free insider's guide, I will have sent you those links as well as other links to the articles I mentioned in this week's episodes, along with a summary article. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com on the homepage or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. In this article, he writes, a company's value chain is a system of interdependent activities which are connected by linkages. Linkages exist when the way in which one activity is performed affects the cost or effectiveness of other activities. Linkages often create trade-offs in performing different activities that should be optimized. Careful management of linkages is often a powerful source of competitive advantage because of the difficulty rivals have in perceiving them and resolving trade-offs across organizational lines. Now, that's applying it to business. I like to take Michael Porter and this concept of interrelated activities and linkages and apply it to the individual. In terms of your career, you are gaining skills in inventory. And and the skills that you get as you wind your way through your path, this Austin wrote about becoming a financial advisor. He's 
in his early 20s. The reality is when you're in your early 20s, nobody trusts you and believes you. And it's hard to be a financial advisor when, when you're 22 because people just think, don't think you had the experience. So I, I suggested that he get any type of job in finance, a corporate finance job. And then you start getting experiences and inventory and skills. And then as you combine it with other inventory and skills, you form these linkages, these interrelated activities, and that becomes a personal competitive advantage in the marketplace. You become you. You become unique. I've seen this in podcasting. I didn't know anything about podcasting, but I knew something about investing. And I had spent many years speaking to college endowment investment committees. So when I did a podcast, I don't know how to interview people, so I didn't want to do an interview podcast. But I know how to teach about investing, and so I created a podcast about that. And it and it's done well, and I wrote articles, but I'm not very comfortable doing video because I no longer have a young, fresh face. I'm in my early 50s. Yeah, I have seen that people read less and less, and oftentimes they don't have time to listen to a podcast. But and I find I use YouTube more and more. And and so when I when I pull up my, my iPad, I don't want to spend two hours watching a movie, but I'll watch YouTube. And I saw that there's hardly any good educational content in finance and in terms of at least some of the topics we cover on this show. And so I, I got over my fear and I started creating videos with my talking head and, and my wrinkled skin, and I'm going to do it. And you can you go to Money for the Rest of Us on YouTube and you'll find my first two videos. And what is the linkages? Well, one problem with people that do videos on YouTube is they don't know what to talk about. Well, I have 150 plus episodes of Money for the Rest of Us of various topics, scripts, etc. that I can do short three, four minute videos on. And so I have this other activity that I've done that now links to this new activity that I'm doing on YouTube. And, and that's how, as individuals, we have these skills, we have these activities, we have this bias toward actions, and we link them together. We don't know where it's going to go as technology involves, but if we're nimble and if we're willing to overcome the fear, dance with fear, as Seth Godin says, we will be able to establish a career and navigate through life, even if we lose half our business. In terms of revenue, like my friend's real estate, where 40% of real estate tra- transactions don't involve a re- or they're for sale by owner, or, or if we lose our job, or if we, we get in a situation like Cece in China, she's made it through because she focused on just living day by day, getting more inventory, more skills, and that's how we can overcome Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.